I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. I would like to do a guided meditation, which will go through the stages that we have talked about in my presentations in the previous sessions. So we begin, please, by examining our motivation for practice. And let the four mind-turning truths begin to be contemplated. The first of them, you will die, but you don't know when. Death is certain. The hour of death is uncertain. Life is precious. This moment is the only moment in which one can awaken. This human birth, a human birth in which we have the blessing to pursue and understand the Dharma is a great blessing, a rare blessing. There is karma. What we do think or say has an effect. And when we act, think, or speak with Aversion or grasping, there is suffering. If we gather these four mind-turning truths together, 
can that then be the motivation that during these next few minutes of practice, we examine with great clarity and courage our experience. Beginning then by invoking from the depth of your heart that which you trust. The Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the Triple Gem, the spirit of truth, the spirit of love, the Christ, the Great Mother, Shiva. Whatever name or nameless quality you ascribe to that which you most deeply trust, invoke that then from the depth of your heart so that the mind can begin to relax its grasping, letting thoughts, sensations arise as they will, without the need to squeeze understanding or meaning out of what is happening. Invoking in the sense of receiving, accepting that which is true, that which supports us, that which is trustworthy. Opening our hearts and our minds to this truth. And as a way then of bringing this trust also into our physical bodies, firstly taking a few grounding breaths, breathing in through the base of your torso into the earth, she who supports, the earth of nourishment and grounding and support, the great mother, the infinite grounding energy. that allows us to work directly with any fear that may arise. Trusting that in this moment we are supported and what is arising is the perfect expression of this moment, the only possible expression, grounded in that truth. Letting the lower part of your body your pelvis, your legs, and your feet become, become filled with a sense of groundedness, strength, mountain-like stability. If there is resistance to dropping down so far from the mind that wants to know, notice the resistance not as a problem or distraction, but as simply an integral part of the healing process. Coming back again to inhabiting the base, receiving she who supports. And then with this very brief 
introduction, moving on to centering the belly center behind the navel. As we breathe out, as we let go of breath, we let go of any identification we have with our mind and drop down into the center of our physical and energetic body. Soft belly, soft shoulders, belly receiving chi, strength, prana, in infinite supply. Being centered implies that there is a stillness around which all activity occurs. In fact, your very sense of self dropping down into your belly so that instead of paying attention to your belly, you're paying attention from your center. Hearing the sound of my voice from an energetic stance of being centered. Grounded, centered, lower body, stable like a mountain. Letting this then be a very brief foundation for inhabiting the heart of compassion, the heart that always shines even though at times it is seemingly obscured, meeting each experience with mercy, no matter the content as soon as you notice that you have been caught in the mind, in identification with experience, with content, come back to being awake and present with mercy. Compassion being born in this very simple moment in which you notice that you have been lost. The foundation of being centered, supporting the open heart, the heart of compassion making bearable, workable, whatever may arise, no matter what the content. As we inhabit our belly center. And as the heart becomes more and more sky-like in its appearance, more spacious, 
more empty of the notion of separateness, the sense of warmth and connectedness. The true nature of a sky-like heart reveals that that which we invoked is actually not something that in any way we are separate from. that the nature of that which you invoke, that which is most trustworthy, is your own true nature. And as we rest in this wisdom, the content of experience becomes much less a focus than our relationship with the quality of experience. The blissful, radiant nature arising in each moment regardless of the content of experience. A distracted mind, a focused mind, a pleasant sensation, an unpleasant sensation, nothing ever lacking, nothing in excess. Vast, boundless heart, letting go of all effort except the effort to die into each moment, surrendering into the wisdom mind, the heart of compassion, an energetic body that is centered and grounded. Nothing to achieve, nothing to understand. If you were to take your last breath with this openness of heart, this clarity of mind, how would that be different from dying with fear or confusion? Consciousness, pure awareness, meeting each experience. Dedicating the merit of our practice with the wish that all beings might realize the intrinsic freedom of their minds and be free from suffering. And even though a bell will ring, 
It does not mean to stop resting in the wisdom mind, in the heart of compassion, in an energetic body that is grounded and centered as a foundation, a stable foundation. Going back to our motivation, what is the most important thing? My first meditation teacher, Suzuki Roshi, said, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. What is the most important thing for you? Can we keep this in our heart as we explore together here tonight? It's often said that the post-meditation period is equally, if not more important, than the meditation period itself. Can we integrate those feelings of clarity and spaciousness, open-heartedness, into activity, into communication, rather than there being a discontinuity between what we call meditation and what we call after meditation. Several of the questions that I was asked had to do with what kind of support to give to people who are dying. Mm -hmm. And let me just briefly, without any question, let me just mention one thing. And that there are really two levels of support. The relative level is doing the ah breath, doing Kong Len practice, helping people be grounded and centered, working with mantra, doing different things like that. Having a toolkit breeds confidence. It helps you feel that you can help someone. Your confidence helps them. But the, the, the greatest gift you can bring to the bedside of someone who is dying or to someone who is living is Resting in open mind, wisdom mind, nature of mind. So then it doesn't really matter too much what you do or say. It will come out of a place of great wisdom. Whereas if we're there trying to do the right thing, from a dualistic place, what message is that bringing to the person who's dying? They are inexorably being drawn into a place beyond duality and you are there trying to help them from a place of duality. So that can be, it can be useful. Certainly it's better than being surrounded by people who are busy saying, oh, you're going to be okay, nothing to worry about, or <laughs> other people who are tearing their hair out because they're so emotionally enmeshed. But the greatest gift you can bring is to be resting in that spaciousness that I hope most of us were able to just briefly rest in during that practice we were doing a few minutes ago. And then the person who is dying, who is often very psychic, 
is often very sensitive to pick up what is going on in the room, will realize here is somebody who's open, that, that they are feeling that this, this moment of my dying is a workable moment. Maybe it's workable for me too. Maybe I don't have to worry about what's going to happen next. Maybe I can open into this with confidence. Because this person seems to be able to do that. Okay, so now, opening to questions. And they can be for me, they can be for Robert, they can be for both of us, whatever, whatever you like. Sally. So what is the question? Well, at the time, I didn't know that there was a term called terminal sedation, which I learned five years later in a bioethics <laughs> seminar that I was in. Mm-hmm. And they were discussing euthanasia, and I started crying. And the professor asked me during the break, you know, you're crying, what is this about? And I said, um, I killed my mother. It was just kind of a gut feeling I had when we were discussing this that perhaps I ought not to have agreed with the doctor, but I had no idea what I had done necessarily. I didn't know the phrase promulgation or how common this was or if it was common at all. And um, I was concerned when I heard she could go on like this for several weeks and starve to death. I just didn't know what to do. So, I spoke with the professor, who's a bioethicist, and she asked permission to raise it in the class, and she was, you know, she raised it in the class. It was primarily uh, Catholic students, Catholic students, and one of them said, you know, this is called terminal sedation. It's actually not called euthanasia, and um, I have had uh, concerns. That was like five years ago. She died ten years ago, and when Bob was talking about um, I've had some really serious questions um, about how, how my participation in this may have generated karma and that maybe I should not have. I mean, I can't undo it. It was done. I've heard of it. Okay. Okay, can you maybe both speak to that? You, to, you, know, you, you don't have the karma of killing your mother, absolutely not. Karma depends on motivation. Right. And also there's a, there are four things it depends on. And one of them also is identification of the target of the act. And you did not intend to kill your mother. The guy said sedation and out of pain. That's what you thought was, it was. You only heard the other thing five years later. So you had no intention to do in your mother. You knew she was going and you thought it was he, he was doing it to make her more comfortable. Right. So A, you didn't identify someone as that person, I'm going to kill that person. So therefore, and then two, your motivation was for your mother's comfort. So three, you had nothing to do with killing her. So you can be cool, relax. Smile. Right, that's what I was going to say too. I gave the example a couple days ago that there's a mugger who puts a knife in your stomach and you die, and a surgeon puts a scalp in your stomach and you die. They have two very different motivations. Two very different karmas. They both did the same thing. Although Bob today was really, you know... You're talking about Yeshi Dandan today. Well, that's just the baseline. But you are not being told that, you know, you might as well, your mother might live a month, she might live a week, she might live a day. So we're going to do her in quick. Oh, great. You, oh, let's do that. No, you didn't. That wasn't the, the conversation. 
was, morphine means sedation, means painlessness. Yeah. Means getting stoned without anesthesia, it means. So that's what you thought you were agreeing to. So, so just forget about it. The motivation for, from your, for your action was altruistic. Yeah. Not only that, there was no intention to do her in. So therefore, there is no karma of killing. Okay? Zero. Zero. That should be clear. Not a zilch. Zilch. <laughs> End of story. End of story. Next question. Next question. <laughs> Eva. Eva. Okay. What is your opinion about being sedated in the dying process? Being uh, sedated in what? During the dying process. What is our opinion of being sedated? Well, you during know more about that. Right. All I know is during the birth process, I wanted to be sedated. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> but but, okay. but uh, about the dying, I don't know. It depends on how Okay, so once again, we're talking about karma here. If I had my hip replaced and I, wa I, I wanted to be awake, I mean, certainly I had a block, so I wasn't feeling a lot of pain, but I, f I figured this is going to be interesting. You know, a light construction zone, bone dust flying around, and cauterizing flesh and things like that. But this would be an interesting thing to be up there for. What was this operation? Hip replacement. Oh, my God. Did you have a beer? Did I have a beer? Yeah. <laughs> they actually had a curtain up so you couldn't see it. But, the, but the, the, the point to your question is... If you can be present without resistance, why not be present? If, however, the pain is such that you can't deal with it, and you are resisting and contracting and creating the karma of, oh, I can't take this, take some drugs. Nothing wrong with taking some drugs. Uh, at the same time, as we talked about right before lunch today, uh, we talked about the pain meditation and that many people, myself certainly included, learn a lot about not automatically reacting to the unpleasant through my relationship with physically unpleasant sensations, mm -hmm. which is much easier and more direct than trying to deal with unpleasant emotions or thoughts because they're much more seductive and confusing. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a whole spectrum here of how severe the pain is. And I would encourage everyone to explore the possibility of being with unpleasant sensation and seeing if you can relax, if you can soften, if you can have an open heart. It's just an unpleasant sensation. When you're dying, it might be really super unpleasant. We don't know. And if every time something unpleasant arises, you go, I can't deal with this, you are setting yourself up for potential trouble. Okay, uh, at the same time, if, if the pain is so severe, like in childbirth or whatever it might happen to be, then, uh, of course, take the sedation so that you can be present as much as possible. The, the, the uh, analgesic will allow. Uh, let me give you just two examples. When, when Stan Groff was uh, first here in America, the National Institutes of Health funded him to do an experiment where they were giving a low dose of LSD to terminal, can to terminal cancer patients, quote unquote, as a psychotherapeutic way of dealing with fear of pain. 100 micrograms LSD hospital setting. And they found that this was 
very successful until the government decided they didn't want right. to be in the job of pushing psychedelics. <laughs> so they cut the experiment. But what they found that really surprised them was because to be in the experiment, you had to have quote-unquote terminal cancer, it meant that a lot of these people had a lot of pain. This was back in the dark ages when hospice wasn't as good as titrating pain medication. And what they found that surprised them was that many of these people, after their psychedelic sessions, experienced a significant reduction in the need for pain medication, yet LSD has absolutely no pain-relieving properties. Ha-ha! What is that about? Well, if I think that I'm five feet, eight inches tall, and I weigh 170 pounds, and there's X amount of pain bouncing around inside of me, that can be a really big problem. If I have an, exper an experience that leads me to believe I'm the whole universe, that same amount of pain can be bouncing around. What's the big deal? I'm the whole universe, right? Right. So, how big are you? Who are you? Who's, I mean, Stephen Levine says, who dies? Well, who experiences the pain? They've done other experiments where people who were taking massive amounts of morphine for uh, pain relief were instead given a small amount of morphine in conjunction with a small amount of an antidepressant and a small amount of a muscle relaxant. And it was found that many of these patients could do just as well and not be heavily sedated. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, the antidepressant and the muscle relaxant are a chemical equivalent, sort of, of the pain meditation. It's helping you relax, to be spacious, to not be resistant. And then the person didn't need this massive amount of mm -hmm. opiates. They just needed a little bit. One final story. Added a little acid on top of that, and they probably would have been recovered. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> a little acid. Added a little acid yeah, on there you go. <laughs> they would have levitated. So when I just one final little story. When when I had my hip replaced, uh, there was a half hour period where the the uh, operative analgesic wore off, and the post operative uh, anesthetic had not taken effect. So for half an hour the largest muscle of my body, my butt muscle, had been cut through, and I was in the most intense pain I could imagine. And I was in ecstasy. There was no possibility of being distracted or thinking about it. It was just me making love with the sensations. It was just like there was nothing but this red-hot pain going on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I did have I did have the big advantage that I knew it was going to be done really soon. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I got to talk to you <laughs> later. Okay. Somebody had their hand up over here. Robert. Rick. Rick. Oh, Rick. Uh, actually, one quick comment on uh, sedation. Um, in the short time I've been working with guys, I've figured out that I have to ask the client early on how sedated they want to be. Because the first two clients I had, I never had another word with them when possible to them. It was all they were wrong. He said that he's been working with, with dying clients and he's learned that he has to have a conversation with somebody about how sedated they want to be right in the very beginning. Because if you wait too long, hospice has sedated people out of ability to communicate with him any longer. Oh, it seems to be the normal, right?
Uh, my question is the other thing I've encountered, and I've, I think I've done well with it, but I'm not sure how to handle it, is how common is it to have your head work when people are seeking forgiveness? I'm sorry, how common is it? How common is it when you have um, dying who are seeking forgiveness from you as a counselor? For you to forgive them? Well, people who don't have clergy, who aren't open to clergy, but want to have a conversation about things that they want to be forgiven for. So I, what I've done is I've painted it in general terms. Um, but it's, I'm wondering, did I have that happen twice? Is that a common thing? Well, I have to confess that I work with a very strongly uh, self-selected subpopulation of dying people who want spiritual support, which is probably not the people that go to hospice in Cincinnati, Ohio. Nope. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I don't, re I don't recall it ever happening uh, in my experience. Uh, certainly, there are graduated levels of ways you can support somebody who's dying. The, 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 the best way is to help somebody do what the Tibetan book of the dead is talking about, to find the luminosity, uh, the wisdom mind. Uh, if they can't do that, can somebody do compassion practice? Can they uh, kind of forgive themselves, have compassion for all the things that haven't worked out in their lives? If they can't do that, uh, can you have somebody uh, just remember the good things they've done in life. Everybody's done something good. Hitler did something good. He loved his mommy or who knows what. But, so that you're dying at least with a positive thought in your mind. Uh, and uh, there's even another one that there may be where you have somebody dedicate their suffering so that other people may be free of suffering. So that even though they're, they're dying and they're, they're still suffering, instead of saying, oh, this is terrible, I'm suffering, I'm offering the suffering so that other people don't suffer so much. And uh, that can really comfort someone's heart. I think, so. I think that people, you should do what they want. If they're looking for forgiveness, then you just become the counselor, because fundamentally, everybody is forgiven. Well, in one case, that's where I spoke about my feelings about forgiveness. Yeah. Which felt appropriate, and then I second guessed myself and wondered if it was not appropriate. That's why I'm asking. There is a very direct forgiveness meditation where, supposing your patient's name is Joe, and you just get Joe to start saying, Joe, I forgive you. Joe, I forgive you. And in the beginning, he concentrates on the words, and then you encourage him to imagine what that would feel like if he actually experienced that, and to really go into the feeling of what it would be like to be forgiven. And for many people, it takes many months to go through this, but if somebody's looking at death uh, around the immediate corner, they can do these practices much more directly and quickly than somebody who thinks they've got tomorrow and the next day and the next day to do these things. So there's three kinds of forgiveness. There's forgiving yourself, there's asking forgiveness, and there's offering forgiveness to people that you feel that you may have harmed. 
And they're very traditional. I think Sharon Salzberg has a book of loving kindness and forgiveness meditations that are very, very useful. I think one big thing to ask someone who's like that is ask them about if there's anybody that they themselves do not forgive, who they feel have harmed or betrayed or harmed them, and, and get them to work on that. Because it's very bad for them to die with a grudge. That's a really bad thing. So, so the idea of like, if they give up their grudge, then, then, then anybody who might have a grudge against them will be, will be more inclined, I mean, on some sort of, you know, psychic level to, to forgive them, and they're more likely to feel they deserve forgiveness because they forgave somebody, and they'll feel more comfortable, I think. Because if someone's really concerned about forgiveness, they might be, have been having a long and bitter fight with a family member or a sibling or a partner or an ex-partner or something. And that's intense. I love that in connection with the future life thing with people, especially in America, about how people shouldn't drive too hard a bargain with their exes. Because <laughs> they're going to fall in love with them next life, and then they might be, a shoe might be on the other foot. <laughs> that always gives people... The people are like, oh. There's also a thing in Mill Valley, there's a forgiveness society. And they give forgiveness awards every year. And then they wanted to give me one. They gave Marianne Williamson one, other people. And then, and then I couldn't go there. First I said, well, that would be very nice. I, you know, I'd like to have that. And then I'll try. I like Mill Valley, and I'd like to go. And then only, a, unfortunately, too soon near the event, around six weeks before, I realized I couldn't really go. So I said, I'm sorry, I can't come. And they Please didn't forgive, forgive me. You. And they didn't forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I read. Um, assuming that one were to let somebody go in that condition and so forth, would it not be also to follow up by doing a call practice for them? Sure. You know, Absolutely. Assuage whatever upset or anxiety, perhaps, or any unfinished business that, you Definitely. that they might have left. Definitely. Between you, yeah. to actually either look at Certainly. There's a book that is published, a very dreadful book, by Oxford Press, called The Life of Rallo Zawa. Rallo Zawa was a famous yogi, a Tibetan yogi, who studied a lot in Nepal and Tibet at the time of Marpa and Milarepa in the 11th century. And... He's dealing with the time in Tibet when there are a lot of bad gurus running around Tibet. The Tibet is kind of, Buddhism is kind of rekindling after a century or so of neglect. And uh, there's a lot of sort of, you know, what one Argentine guy, once was in Argentine, Ralo Dawa, his name is. No, the Argentinian one. No, 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 I'm just I'm trying to tell a story. I was visiting in Argentina, and I asked one guy if they hadn't had any spiritual teachers there or something. He says, yes. He said, we've had muchos swamis pistoleros. <laughs> he said, swamis pistoleros, you know, like banded swamis, he told me. And uh, this guy, and you know, a lot of sort of really, you know, unethical and nasty guru types, you know, and they were, and they were very open to it, the defendants at that time. So, so Ronald Zawa, actually, he, and they all, the guy who translated it, you know, some scholar, so horrified by it, and because relatives often waste these people. They have sort of magic contests, and he kills lots of them. But he always follows them in the between, and then he, he jacks them up into a positive place in the between. 
And, and it's kind of a rule, actually, the exceptional bodhisattva who does a fierce deed, which they do have in the, in the, in the whole tantric thing of India and Tibet, they, they are not allowed to do it unless they can follow the person afterwards. So now, an ordinary people like us, in your kind of situation, William, then, of course, if you had the access in Tibet to some lama who knew how to do poa, to some monks who could do a ritual, to yourself if you could do a ritual, you know, then if you heard they were going to pull the plug because they were going to do, they, they would call you and say, well, he's in this certain crisis and we're not going to resuscitate, then, or your daughter urges you to do that, you would go there yourself, take that lama, and try to do something, you know, someone else who would be a specialist of doing that. And that, that they do because in a way, you know, there's, a, there's the individual adept who actually can see the person in between. In the movie Ghost, it was Whoopi, remember? Whoopi could see the ghost. And she helped him save the wife from the bad guy, right? Because like there was one psychic who could see the ghost. <laughs> Whoopi, that was her great deed. And, and, uh, but if you can't do that, then the society has specialists who try to deal with that. And there are people like that. And some of them are not, they don't have to be Buddhists or Tibetan Hamas. They are other people who have this kind of ability. And, they, and one should try to get one of them to help. And then manage the thing. The key, another key thing, I think, that we never think about is because of, the, as I said, the consensual reality of our culture is at a funeral, the most important person is the disembodied spirit of the one who's died. Not the grieving people, and the, they are not the most important people. The, the one who's going through the big transition, who needs all the help, is the one who died. You know, but nobody ever thinks that. They just say, oh, poor Jay, oh, you lost so so. It's like the guy is like so much meat or something, or it's like a number in a book. You know, but actually, he's the one who's freaking out. And the Tibetans are very against those cultures where people tear their hair and their clothes and shriek and freak, because, you know, he's saying, if, if this is correct, if these reports are correct, he's saying that causes a searing pain in the one who has departed. They see their relatives having a complete spasm. Like, has this been a disaster? Maybe it's been a disaster. I was feeling kind of cool. I was seeing my guide. I was remembering my instructions from Dale. I was like, Ram Das is there, the blessed grace, fierce grace. I was all happy. And then suddenly these people are freaking out. Maybe something terrible wrong has happened. <laughs> And gets all upset, which is really bad for that person. Then they, then they go run away in bad places. But wouldn't the person who's just died realize that that's just the attachments of all those relatives and that their, their, experience, so. their experience of the luminosity right after they died? Yes, wouldn't that be a lot stronger than... Remember, when you're in that subtle thing, it's like a dream. And you are a being who's hold, you're holding yourself together on pure concept and emotion. So you're incredibly malleable. You know, you're incredibly susceptible. You're very, very highly oversensitive. Okay. In a way. How's that? Right. That makes sense. <laughs> we talked to you. Okay, guys, it's not time to go.